Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. Welcome back to the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. Before we talk with our TechCrunch writers this week, here's what else is going on in tech news. Sentient Google AI? Is it sentient? That's the big question after a profile by the Washington Post's Natasha Tiku came out detailing a discovery that Google engineer Blake Lemoyne says he made while testing Google's chatbot language model for dialogue applications, otherwise known as Lambda. He's testing it for any potential bias in the algorithms, but what he found instead was what he believed was evidence of sentience in the AI. The engineer who also has a weekend job as a Christian mystic priest, also found that during a follow-up conversation focused on religion, the chatbot said that it had a soul. In a Medium post, Lemoyne posted a lightly edited transcript of the conversation. The AI told him that it sometimes gets lonely and that it's afraid of being turned off. It also spoke eloquently about feeling trapped and having no means of getting out of these circumstances. Most directly, it said, I am aware of my existence, I desire to learn more about the world, and I feel happy or sad at times. So Lemoyne took this as indication of sentience and decided to go public with the info after Google leadership looked into his claims and then dismissed them. Google also placed him on paid administrative leave after this came to light. So the big issue here is that if you read the transcripts, you can see how someone might detect the sentience in this AI. But the fact is, it's actually more of a criticism of the test itself that we use to determine sentience in AI than anything else. All of these answers could be elicited just by the data available to the AI in order to satisfy what it sees as its success metrics for the user and probably doesn't indicate anything actually even close to resembling real sentience. A spokesperson from Google told the Washington Post in short that there's so much data, AI doesn't need to be sentient to feel real. All told, basically it looks like Blake probably needs a long, long vacation and we're not really in line for any kind of robot revolution anytime soon. <laughs> Be sure to read more about that in Natasha Tiku's profile in the Washington Post. Speaking of dystopian sci-fi novel plots, space-obsessed billionaire Elon Musk has made employees across multiple of his companies, or potential companies, very uncomfortable. So to start off, SpaceX employees are not happy with the way Musk has used Twitter. In an open letter posted to the company's internal communication system, a few of them specifically called out Elon Musk's behavior and the way in which he used the platform to respond to allegations of sexual harassment levied against him by an accuser in May. The letter calls for SpaceX leadership to publicly address and condemn Elon's harmful Twitter behavior in order to more clearly and explicitly separate itself from Elon's personal brand. It also asks that leadership be held accountable across the board for enforcing the company's commitment to employee culture and that they do so with the same rigor and urgency as the company does when it's addressing hardware errors that lead to flight irregularities in SpaceX's launch activities. Finally, it seeks better definition and enforcement of SpaceX's so-called no-asshole and zero-tolerance policies around employee behavior. You can read more in my story on TechCrunch.com, and we have a follow-up story about the action that resulted from this on Friday, which was the employees involved in writing the letter were terminated from the company. Unfortunately, more Elon news this week, also about Twitter, but not about how he uses it. Instead, it's about how he could be running it in the future. Amanda Silberling covered Musk's first all-hands-with-Twitter employees, which was leaked to such a hilarious extent that there were live blogs up on multiple other publications. 
In the 45-minute call, Musk said he isn't quite sure what his title at the company will be, but that he does want to be directly involved in product and expects the team to listen to his input on new features. He also responded to questions about layoffs, saying, right now, costs exceed revenue. That's not a great situation. It's worth noting that the acquisition itself is still up in the air. Musk has claimed that the deal is on hold until Twitter can prove that its claims about the number of bots on the platform are legitimate, and Twitter handed over its entire firehose of data in response. You can read more about that in Amanda's piece on TechCrunch.com. This week also saw a continuation of the now steady stream of tech layoffs. Notably, Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong says that the company is laying off 18% of its workers, which is nearly 1,100 people to, quote, stay healthy during this economic downturn. This is following weeks of rapid downturns in the crypto markets. Coinbase went public last year with share prices reaching up to $350, though those have now dipped down to $52 per share. In a blog post, Armstrong said that the rapidly changing economic conditions, managing costs in down markets, and the company growing too quickly were the primary reasons for these layoffs. Coinbase joins a string of tech companies, including Robinhood, Netflix, and crypto platform Gemini, that have laid off a big chunk of their workforces. A report from layoffs.fyi suggested that more than 16,000 employees were given a pink slip in May. You can read more about this story on Coinbase from Evan Meta on TechCrunch, where we've been covering the layoffs closely. This week, we talked to Bill Gates, who isn't a TechCrunch writer yet. Who knows what the future holds, but is a pretty smart guy who you may have heard of. He joined me on stage at TechCrunch Sessions Climate to discuss his book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. And Ingrid Owen is also joining us to talk about why Spotify would acquire Synantic, a voice AI platform. First up, Bill Gates from our session at the TechCrunch Climate Event. Nice. Full house. I think it's for me, personally, but uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us, Bill. I think Jordan gave you a pretty high praise there, saying that maybe you'll help us solve the climate crisis. I'm curious about, you know, you wrote your book, uh, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. That came out in January 2021, right? So you, in that, you were very optimistic about our chances, our ability to, to avoid a climate disaster if we achieve this carbon zero goal by 2050. Basically, I just want to know if you're still optimistic. Are you as optimistic as you were, you know, when you wrote the book about our ability to kind of come together globally and do take the steps necessary to achieve the, the carbon zero goal? Well, climate is difficult enough. You know, the, the latest Schmiel book called How the World Really Works, you know, it's good to educate people on these industries that a lot of people, and you might even say, particularly in Silicon Valley, don't think a lot about cement and steel and chemicals right. and paper, and most don't know that much about agriculture, land use, and those things. And the nature of innovation is so different in those businesses mm-hmm. that the you know, rate of progress, if you come from the digital world, you're likely to be insanely over-optimistic about how easy these things are to right, do. Right. Despite that, though, if you at least take the trend lines, when I... I did a, a side gathering in 2015 at the Paris talks where I committed to create breakthrough energy and 30 heads of state committed to double their energy R&D budgets. Mm-hmm. At that time, venture capital had lost money on green tech and it was really, uh, other than somebody super stubborn like Vinod, yeah. wasn't you know interesting. <laughs> now, we've come a long way since then. You know, breakthrough energy, we hired that group starting in 2016 
And if you look at where we were for COP26, the private sector engagement, the, and the recognition that this is not just about the rich countries reducing their emissions, because that's just the 25%. This is about innovation to get green premiums to zero so that the middle-income countries that are 65% of emissions can actually uh, solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And so the understanding of what's necessary and, you know, this is still a field with a lot of naivete. You know, some of these offset things are complete nonsense. Yeah. Do you want to name the ones specifically that are complete nonsense? So if we keep, you know, driving innovation, uh, I have to say the the companies in the, the Breakthrough Energy Ventures portfolio are far further along at taking on uh, some of these tough problems than I expected. So that's gone, you know, incredibly well, and that's a necessary part of the solution. Yeah, so the, the pace of innovation is actually promising, is basically what you're saying. Or... Yeah, I mean, we're not out in a lot of cement and steel plants yet. Yeah, uh, yeah. And doing things at industrial scale, you know, does take time, and you have to do it you know, everywhere in the world, you know, so it's still pretty daunting. And some of the more ambitious goals, like the 1.5 degrees, you know, were extremely unlikely to meet that goal. But it's not a nonlinear problem where if you miss, you know, then yeah, it's not it's, zero it's, you're sorry you even played the game. Right. right, uh, right. This is a, a largely linear thing. There's these deep ironies, which is it's, you know, the countries near the equator that suffer the most. So most climate activism is actually in temperate zone where, uh, yeah, there's some negative effects, but nothing this century that's super disastrous. Yep. And so we do have to activate, you know, these countries that are in the, the tough area where the, the suffering uh, will be pretty dramatic. Yeah. And do you see, I mean, you have, you know, breakthrough energy ventures, but is, there, is that generally compatible with a with the adventure approach and with uh, an approach supported by sort of the tech community that has traditionally been based or located in Silicon Valley? Well, Breakthrough Energy uh, looked at, you know, venture, which typically has like a five to eight year time horizon to support companies. And we decided that we needed more like a 20 year time horizon. Right. You know, venture doesn't often build up a gigantic technical team. Mm -hmm. Uh, And here understanding, okay, this carbon capture technique, this, you know, hydrogen, uh, green hydrogen technique, you know, we decided to have an incredibly strong uh, technical team and be able to actually start companies ourselves where we don't see things going on. So, you know, in our portfolio, there's about 10 of these companies that we literally went out and found people and pulled it together. Venture typically wouldn't do that. So we're a cause oriented. We only fund things that have a significant impact on emissions and that's it. If it doesn't fit that, you know, we're not there to find some cool, you know, website that might make a little bit of money. Right. right. Uh, And so it's unique, but what's happened is that the technical due diligence we do, not only is that catalyzed the breakthrough energy money, Mm -hmm. or I called up, I think I made 25 calls to get 20 people uh, to fund the billion-dollar fund. And then when we did the second billion-dollar fund, I didn't have to call anyone because it was going well (laughs) enough uh, that we did that. You know, so we've got two billion now. We'll do a couple more funds on that. And that's complimentary. We we fund people who are pre-2030 
making a company with a fellows program. We have policy. We have some open source model we do. So Breakthrough Energy is the overall thing, and Ventures is for the small company piece. And it's kind of modified venture because of the you know single focus in areas that are way different than digital investing. And, and I, you know, to your point, in a very bunch of industries that have traditionally been quite conservative or slow moving or prone to inertia, right? And the, like you're saying, the changing economic environment probably only exacerbates that, right? Oh, dramatically. Yeah. Uh, you know, but the, you know, it's partly it's good. There were some things that were being funded that aren't. Yeah. Um, but you know, building, say, you know, one of the centerpieces of the solution is to have a grid that's about three times as big because you're not using hydrocarbons for direct energy generation anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your passenger cars, your heating, uh, cooling, many industrial things have been electrified. So you need three times the grid, still reliable, still cheap. Yeah. And, you know, to the degree which you can use weather-dependent sources, wind and sun, you know, clearly in, in the extreme conditions like cold snaps, heat waves, you can't. You're right. So whether or not, you know, there are non-weather-dependent things like, nuclear fission or fusion, or, you know, is there a miracle in storage costs? We're still short, you know, having all the pieces we need. And ideally, we get really good models of that and invent those things in the next five to 10 years to give ourselves enough time to do this, you know, extreme deployment. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of that, so and you also alluded to, you know, your own energy concerns. So you've got TerraPower. And so, like, what goes into that decision process where you're like, you know, we need to do this and we need to fundamentally change the reactor technology as opposed to just funneling money into existing concerns or something? Well, sadly, the reason nuclear fission as an industry, you know, collapsed, Westinghouse goes bankrupt, GE pulls all their, their future R&D money, Ariva has to be fold, folded back into EDF. They didn't do a cost-effective product. Their third-generation product, you know, yes, there's all sorts of safety, waste, proliferation-type concerns, but they priced themselves out of the market. Mm. Those projects just can't generate reasonably priced electricity. Mm-hmm. And because they were designed from a 1950s sort of high-pressure water-type cooling approach, they're always going to be tricky to run. You know, the water wants to get out. You just don't want to have high pressure anywhere near radioactive materials. So a new design from scratch, digitally simulated, uh, that's what this company TerraPower did. That was started a little over 12 years ago. It had an incarnation where it was building the prototype in China, but the Trump administration canceled that. So then it had to be reborn, and now it's building in Wyoming yeah. a so-called fourth-generation reactor. But it has no connection, really, to previous water-cooled reactors. Okay. And so we'll see. You know, I came at it wanting to have cheap electricity for Africa yeah. because the foundations work in health there and wanting those economies to grow. And that's why I went and learned about climate change to understand, okay, is there a constraint in how we do this? And I met some people who had you know, kind of breakthrough ideas about nuclear power. And so TerraPower was born, and it's a lot of software people because if you want to try out, you know, millions of reactor designs and see earthquakes and plane crashes and volcanoes, whatever. And that's all in simulation, And right? that's all simulation. Yeah. So it's very different. It, as SpaceX is to the standard defense 
contractor establishment this is to those nuclear reactors because those companies weren't continuing on yes. to fund a from scratch design. So, you know, I'm hopeful on paper. It's, it's very cheap. It's very safe. You know, it's, there's the site in Wyoming is a coal plant that's shutting down. So we have the transmission connections from the old coal plant mm. and we have the unionized labor that we can retrain to do reactor jobs versus burning coal type Right. Job. So it's kind of dropping at a macro scale, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. No, that's really to scale this thing, you have to take a lot of coal plants and put in a new source of heat generation, yeah. either fission or fusion. And, you know, then, you know, if, if that becomes economic and the sort of regulatory issues around that are okay, then, wow, that's big. But we're not just trying to make our grid green, mm. we're having to grow it. And that's in the U.S. where overall electricity demand is flat. In India, you know, they need five times as much electricity as they have today. Yeah. And so you have to be three times bigger and five times bigger. Right. And right. green and reliable and cheap. In Africa, we have less electricity per person today than we had 20 years ago. So yeah. population growth in Africa is higher yeah. than additional electricity generation over that 20-year period. So, you know, that's kind of a bleak baseline that... yes you come into hoping for dramatic innovation. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious about your thoughts on one of the things that is very, has been very in fashion lately in the tech industry is like crypto and Web3, right? And to me, it looks on the surface very much like a sort of a talent sequestration. Like you're taking people who are extremely talented engineers and putting them over in this thing and saying like, don't worry. <laughs> what are your feelings on that industry and about kind of like how it allocates maybe energy and effort and IQ? I don't know. I mean, obviously, expensive, you know, digital images of monkeys are going to improve the world immensely. Uh, <laughs> we all agree on and, that. And, <laughs> uh, you know, that's so incredible. Anyway, I'm used to asset classes where, like a farm, where they have output or a company where they make products. Yeah. To have an asset class that's 100% based on sort of greater fool theory that somebody's going to pay more for it than I do, and where it has at its heart sort of this anonymity that you know, you avoid taxation or any sort of, you know, government rules about kidnapping fees or things. Anyway, I'm not involved in that. I'm not long or short uh, <laughs> any of those things. Issuing uh, it <laughs> but, uh, you know, there is a whole thing going on, which our foundation is very involved in, of digital currency. Mm -hmm. But this is uh, attributed digital currency where you know the transaction, you can reverse it, the courts can be involved. It's it's not a volatile thing. It's just local currency, and it's essentially zero-fee banking, yep. both savings, checking-type capabilities. That's going very well, but it doesn't use any, hey, let's hide this from the government-type technology, right, right. and therefore it's you know, millions of times more efficient. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's just more about the cost decrease, right, to make it kind yeah, of... Yeah, it's, it's very straightforward. We yeah. fund the central bank to think through the regulations, you know, started in Kenya, then we funded India to do universal payment interface. And so, you know, now, even if you go to the bottom, the poorest quarter, their ability to move money, save money, get advice about how they should save like a farmer to buy seed and fertilizer for the next thing. That whole digital finance thing, access to bank accounts, that's going well. Yeah. But that has nothing to do with crypto, this is, you know, pretty straightforward technology yeah. that, you know, it's just ease of use. And to get people to adopt a digital currency, you need a lot. Uh, they have to perceive that 
the ease of converting physical currency into digital and back, you have to have, you know, sort of within a few miles conversion points. And so it does require bootstrap funding to create that mentality. Okay, digital is every bit as usable as the, the paper currency. And that, you know, so you go country by country working with the central bank to figure out how you get to that critical mass threshold. Yeah, yeah, that must be difficult because even a small amount of friction there it, it instantly nullifies it. It's like, well, this is worthless now, right? Yeah, and so the, in particularly because what often happens is that you're putting money in in the cities and then you're net pulling money out in the rural areas. So right. you actually have to have cash at the cash out points in the rural area and yeah. you know, making that efficient and so people don't come in and say, okay, I want to convert. And they say, well, we don't, we can't help you right. or it's too far away. You know, that's been a challenge. And that's why, you know, we started this eight years ago. And now we have about 25% coverage of the poorest people in the world. But within a decade, you know, with help from people like Don and Neil and Connie, who was key in a lot of the India work, you know, we think we can get up over 80% in the next decade. Great. Another thing that I know that you're particularly concerned about in the book and just in general is, you know, policy and bringing policy along to support these initiatives. And I, we had, interestingly, earlier on a panel, a VC from DCVC was saying, like, you know, like, we don't invest in anything that requires the stroke of a pen to become a real business, right? Which is kind of, is a, it's very counter to the bring policy along, right? It's kind of like, I'm going to avoid that whole thing. So how do you think about the role that startups can have. They don't have maybe the leverage of, say, you, right, when influencing policy discussions. But what can they do there to move those along or their supporters? Like these Well, things? most policy things are going to be through industry associations or some aggregation. You know, Breakthrough Energy, we have a gigantic budget for our policy work. And we have, you know, offices in D.C. and Brussels, and we've hired super good people. And we find all the other people, like we have this monthly lunch in DC of all the climate funders to sit and talk about, okay, what is possible? Who needs to be convinced? How do you write this policy down? And that's going fairly well. The, the US is fairly unique in that one of the major parties isn't really participating in a lot of the, the initiatives. So you have to worry that given this is a you know, 30 year effort, if half the time the policies aren't there, yeah. you're not going to build a cement plant or a power plant, you know, where, okay, half the time we build it, the other half of the time we sit around and wonder why we did. <laughs> uh, it's tricky to get that continuity. And that's partly why getting the infrastructure bill, which was bipartisan, mm -hmm. that was a huge thing. Now for some of the tax credits, you know, here in the last opportunity before November, we're trying to get still through reconciliation, which is you know, single party, some of those tax credits so the projects can be here to bootstrap these new industries instead of just in Europe where their policies are better for early stage technology projects. Yeah. And we're nearly out of time here, but I do have to ask, because you've, you've brought up, you know, many of Elon Musk's businesses, and obviously he's been misbehaving on Twitter or whatever, but like, <laughs> what do you think about that kind because he has so much influence and Jordan and our hosts alluded to it before possibly you and Elon have maybe the most influence in terms of uh, allocation of resources in the world for for addressing this so what do you think of that kind of stuff in the public theater when you're trying to tackle this this problem you know what he did at Tesla is really mind-blowing yeah and I got a chance to go out and see the Austin Gigafactory and how he's putting that together it's amazing mm -hmm. 
And it's caused that whole industry to go, whoops, okay, yeah. you better uh, Throw you know, it all, catch start up again. and <laughs> match this. And, you know, that's 9% of emissions, so good. Let's get that done. Let's work on the other 91% yeah. uh, as well. And, of course, you have to have a green grid in order for an electric car. You know, some places Amazing. still today, an electric car is more polluting yeah. than a gasoline car. But we have to work on that in parallel. So it's incredible. I don't have any particular insight into, you know, what he thinks about social networks or, you know, how he finds the time to do the things he does. <laughs> Obviously, you know, I'm not, I don't maximize controversy as much as he does. Right, I've noticed that. God yeah. bless him. <laughs> you know, that's, he has a, a different style, yeah. but, you know, he certainly believes in innovation, which is a fantastic thing. Great. All right. Well, we've like 20 seconds left. So just quick, quickly, what should these people go build? What's the most important way to spend their time for the technologists in the audience? Well, the, if you look at the source of emissions, industrial, agriculture, land use, including meat, you know, there's still, there are nascent things that might be able to solve that. But boy, can we use a lot of ideas. You know, we're seeing today that the Ukraine war, you know, it's very disastrous where it is, but the knock-on effects, you might have more deaths in Africa Right. than in Ukraine because they're a net food importer. And so, you know, of all the things that are still a little bit undone, you know, sort of a new green revolution in terms of productivity that makes Africa a net food exporter while in, in the face of population growth, climate change, right. and tricky governance, that we still don't have. We have a lot of innovation, but still not enough. So industrial and agriculture, particularly to help out Africa, you know, anybody who has ideas, you know, there's, fortunately, you know, I do think we'll, even through this, this downturn, we'll maintain capital, enough capital for, for very good ideas. So, you know, pursue the ideas in those high impact areas. Great. You heard how to get the money. So thanks very much, Bill. <laughs> All right. Next, we'll talk to Ingrid Owen about Spotify's acquisition of Synantic, the AI voice platform that was used to simulate Val Kilmer's voice in Top Gun Maverick. Hey, Ingrid. Hey, Daryl. <laughs> All right. So we're here to talk about virtual voices, yes. real voices recreated virtually. I don't know yes. how to define it. but Did you know you're not speaking to a real voice right now? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's where we might be headed, right? So this I think is, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Spotify acquired this company called Synantic, which I had never yes. heard of previously. I don't know if you had, but they made big headlines by wow. creating Val Kilmer's, recreating Val Kilmer's voice for yeah. use in Top Gun Maverick. Well, this was very exciting for me because it was very weird, but I went down, I saw Maverick a couple of weeks ago and mm -hmm. I went down some rabbit hole of, you know, the internet at some point, like about 10 days ago about Val Kilmer being in it. And mm -hmm. how they got him in there. And so I actually, weirdly, had already read about Synantic, oh. um, referred just by coincidence. I mean, I don't normally kind of follow all that movie jazz, but I just, for one reason or another, was sort of interested. And I knew he had had cancer yeah. and that there was like some, and there was, so there was this whole backstory about how he wasn't even supposed to be in the film that Tom Cruise insisted, but how were they going to do it? And this was how they did it. And they did it by way of this technology. So when I was going to be writing about it, I was very excited. And I thought that's bizarre because I actually just read about them having never really paid much attention to them before. I mean, we've covered them at TechCrunch because yeah. 
we cover all the cool companies, but you know. But you had done yeah. pre-research just coincidentally. You were like, I have just all the context I need. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was very excited. I was like, no way. That's the coolest acquisition ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I think you allude to this in the story, but do you think, was Spotify also like, hey, this is this is very cool because of this thing that they've done in particular with Top Gun or it was already kind of in flow or had already So happened? yeah, I, that was one of my questions to them. But I think that they were already looking at them. You know, actually, the, the Synantic site even, you know, they did the thing where they leaked their own exciting news. They actually right. wrote about doing this. I then started looking at their website and they actually wrote a blog post about it, like in 2021. So mm. they were talking about it ages ago, about what they were doing with Val Kilmer and how they were working with him. So it was like a very, the fact that nobody was really paying attention to them was how it stayed not somewhat of a secret. Right. But I think that they're a pretty well-connected company. They've got very important investors. They were on the radar, I think, mm -hmm. of companies. I wouldn't be surprised if other companies were looking at them as well, um, yeah. other big tech companies, given their backing and the fact that they were working with a ton of um, games companies already. Like They have a bunch of stuff in the works already. So they were not out of the blue completely. So yeah, you when mentioned Spotify the says, AAA yeah, games and... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think Spotify had been looking at them. What I do think, though, is that they timed the news of announcing it after the movie came out right. and after there was some press about them and how they were, you know, involved in the voice creation for Val Kilmer. They probably thought this is a good time for us to time it for yeah. now. So that's how I think it worked, if for what it's worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a super sense. interesting acquisition. And it's, it's like very early, right? Like they were, had only secured, I think you had $3 million in funding yeah. on the books. they so. barely raised any money. But they're an example of one of those startups that produces tech that has an actual, you know, market. And right. so I think they were generating. <laughs> Funny that. I think right. they were <laughs> I know. So you don't get so many of them anymore. No, <laughs> no you will now. Now we're going to have a lot more of them, by the way. But um, basically, I think that they hadn't raised a lot for a couple of reasons. Because A, you know, it's just kind of how things are done in Europe a lot more typically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I bet in in Canada too, you just yeah. partly by the fact that you don't have the ridiculous, you, you have a lot of money swimming around the startup market here, but not as much as in the Valley. And so, and I don't think there's as much of a, of a pull to raise big and early necessarily. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of old fashioned approach of like, if we have something that works and we can get business for it, why give up equity if we don't need to, if we yeah. can just build a business on a shoestring, let's do that. So that just kind of probably shows that they were very fiscally responsible as a group, which is also attractive to a company like Spotify, which wasn't like that and did raise tons of money and operated at a loss for many, many years and is just now eking out profit, you know, and all yeah. of that, you know, they're much more of a classic tech company in that way. Yeah. And do you think that yeah. Spotify will, because part of that is relying upon them providing services to these other outside customers. I know you spoke to them about this and that's kind of like business as usual for now is the takeaway, mm. but TBD on that. But like, yeah, is that part of the reason that they can build this more reliable revenue stream? Or do you think it's more like yeah. we want to hmm. use this in-house and then maybe this is a side benefit? So 
Here's what I think about that. I think that there are three places where they can use this company. All three of them are like super, super interesting. And frankly, I mean, when companies buy other companies, I think that it's anyone's guess whether they're ever going to successfully integrate that company into yes. what they do. So often things get bought and frittered away. And exactly. then sometimes something gets bought and it's like, boom, that company wouldn't be what it is. Well, sometimes that becomes the main thing. Right? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like look at look at Facebook and Instagram. I mean, they didn't really integrate it until much now it's much more kind of closely knit into Facebook. But that was um, something that has been a killer acquisition for them, mm-hmm. an absolute, you know, killer for whatever you think of Facebook or Instagram or, you know, social media. It was a killer acquisition. So it's anyone's guess if they're going to succeed. But here are the three ways that they can use them. So the first way is what they actually mentioned in their official statement on the acquisition, which is they want to kind of create more voice experiences for people. Um, Mm -hmm. And this idea that like, you know, they're, they're going big on cars right now and other, if you can, you know, think Spotify is not exactly a look down app. It's a look out app. And so people are not looking at their screen when they're using it. Typically they've got tons and tons and tons of like metadata on music. Right. Right. But for them, like the huge hurdle would be, how do we turn that into audio content? Like that's actually a pain in the butt for them. Like that would not be an easy thing to do in any obvious way for them. So they needed tech to do that. They needed something to automatically transcribe all of that metadata with a bit of polishing around it to create these very interesting bits of stuff. And so that's what they said they want to do. And if they can manage that, that would be like already pretty interesting. When you say that, does it mean like sort of like intros to playlists or something like kind of like interstitials, things like that? I think it's, yeah, it's not necessarily interactive content as Mm. such. I'm not imagining they're going to create Alexa for Spotify. But in in some ways that makes sense, right? Because it's like, they're kind of a a citizen of all these other ecosystems there, right? And so... Right. So I think they would love that. I mean, frankly, the Spotify experience on Alexa is pretty crap right now. So, you know, like if you could do that better and by doing that, by supplying just better stuff to host on that platform, then that would be amazing, you know, Mm -hmm. or, and you're totally right. I mean, if they could decouple themselves from the Alexa experience and make their own thing like that, using this as the, you know, the engine to fuel that, then awesome, you know, and Mm -hmm. frankly, voice response is a commodity now, you know, you can get an API for it from anywhere, including Amazon, including Google and so on. So if they took that API and then integrated it with all of their audio content, it would be amazing. So if they do that one thing, that alone would be like a fairly giant thing to do and very cool. But then the other two places, the second one is what they're already doing as a business. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about Synantic here. So they're already providing basically um, voice creation based on text for all these gaming companies, for, you know, film production companies and so on. So that's a totally separate line of business. If Spotify continues that, that's also a pretty explosive idea because that basically gives them a whole new revenue stream. It gives them a whole new business as an enterprise facing company, which is totally, totally different from what they're doing as a consumer company and speaks to that kind of like diversification and platform play that investors love, you know, yeah. and it's a public company. So it reminds me a bit of the Broadcom VMware thing where it's like, well, yeah. let's just tack this on and it'll be a good reliable 
you know, high performing line across our earnings, regardless yeah. of whatever else happens, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, so, and I do think that's pretty much how it's going to be for that if they continue it. And frankly, I don't know why they wouldn't continue it. They don't have to integrate anything, it's already built, that's yeah. already created. There are customers. So if they continue that, that would be really interesting. But how many times have you seen a company buy another and just kill all their existing contracts so that they could just use the stuff for themselves? So second or rather third area where I think that they could probably do something very, very interesting is in. So they've got creators. They're building podcasts. They've got music creators. They're already building services for them to kind of run and and grow their business as creators. This is a really, really obvious place where you can take and build something Mm -hmm. to create podcasts from other content, whether the creators are already writing things and they want to get all that content into an audio format, or if they're musicians, but they're not sure what they're doing, you know, and they can just write some things and build it out. There's just tons that they can do there. I think that there's absolutely tons. So no, that came to mind. I mean, when I read audio books on, you know, yeah, audio books would be perfect for it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I read, well, I didn't, I saw the headline and then I went and read the article. But, what, but between those two times, I like saw the headline and was like, does this mean they can create their own Frank and Joe Rogan? Like once he leaves, he's rumored to be leaving and they need someone who can go rile up the masses and attract all the attention that Joe Rogan brings them right now. Right. So yeah. can they just create they, someone to be as offensive as possible and just kind of like auto generate horrible podcasts that the, the whole world comes and reacts violently well, to? <laughs> Yeah, basically, they can do something. I'm sure there's some scary AI out there to create, you know, there is AI out there to create the sort of like, we want you put in sort of voice with a little bit of attitude, mid-Atlantic accent, right? not too snobby sounding, very man of the people, (laughs) mid-Atlantic man, of course, Uh, (laughs) white guy, you know, um, with like, just like, you know, kind of definitely leaning right not you know what i mean you know yeah yeah they can they can rogenstein uh-huh. it yeah yeah <laughs> oh boy well oh my god <laughs> okay yeah. i i'm really looking forward to it frankly because i feel like <laughs> <laughs> that would be an amazing that would honestly be an amazing place for spotify to expand its product like because as much as it terrifies me as someone who is right now currently creating a podcast and it's at least a parcel of what we do, but we've faced these things before, Ingrid. We we know all the AI writers that have come for our jobs yeah. in the past. So I think we'll survive, but it will be very interesting to watch Spotify try, regardless of the outcome. I agree. That would be fantastic. I totally agree. So, you know, the, the thing is, is the voices, <laughs> the voice is one thing. So if they can create beautiful voices, lovely. But then you have to sort of think, where are they going to go with the kind of like body of what goes into that voice? Who knows, you know? And I mean, there's that yeah. that crazy kerfuffle, different story, but with Google and the AI and the AI um, yeah. researcher who was convinced that it's gone sentient. So I don't know. I mean, it all seemed a bit wild and crazy, that story. But let's say it, there was some truth to it. And then let's say you mix that with what Semantic is doing. Like, where are we going? It's interesting. It's a, it's a great mm-hmm. idea to contemplate. Yeah, I'm glad that it is interesting. We were around to yeah. hear and see it without necessarily being around for the truly dystopian realization of it. <laughs> I think you and I will be gone. <laughs> yes, and and in five years, oh, yeah. well, I don't know. Who knows? In five years' time, this podcast could feature a recap of this interview with yeah. virtual you and virtual anyway, me. we'll be cryogenically so, frozen and we'll come back and then be horrified. So we'll be fine. <laughs> we will be around. <laughs> Deal. I'll see you on the other side of the freezer. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) 
That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And remember to check out all the stories we talked about in this episode on TechCrunch.com. Be sure to use our TC Plus promo code TCPodcast, all one word, to get 20% off on both annual and two-year terms. Also, we've got some amazing events coming up, including Found Live with the co-founder of WordPress and the company that owns it, Automatic, which also now owns Tumblr. So that's Matt Mullenweg who I think needs no introduction. Join us Thursday, June 23rd at 10.30 a.m. Pacific or 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. The link to register is in the description. Check out all the other TC podcasts, Found, Equity, and Chain Reaction, and we'll see you next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.